Good morning. And welcome to worship here at Springfield Church of the Brethren. It is October the 30th. We are another month down almost, I guess as of tomorrow's the last day in the month. I hope you are all doing well and welcome to those who are joining us here in person and those who are joining us online. Well, we have reached the end of the Ten Commandments. It has taken us ten weeks. Ten weeks, that's right. All of a sudden, I feel like I'm Johnny Carson up here. For those of us who aren't as old to remember Johnny Carson, talk show host with band leader behind us making comments. Anyway, we have taken our ten weeks and we have reached the end. So, the tenth and final commandment, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You not, shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his manservant or maidservant, or his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. I'm also going to be reading from 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 10. But, God, but godliness with contentment is great, is a great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap into many, um, and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Am I also at 11 here? But you, man of God, flee from all this. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Blessed is the word. So, yes, in case you were curious, I have been watching The Rings of Power, which is the Lord of the Rings series that Amazon's making. And while I have to say it's definitely not canon, they're taking a lot of liberties, it's pretty good still. Anyway, now one of the tales that heavily influenced the Lord of the Rings is called the Volsung Sagas. It's an Icelandic saga that was written somewhere in the 1200s, but it's based on material that goes way back. And it's the kind of thing where they, they find, like, carvings, and they're like, yeah, this is pretty much as early as we can find Germanic cultures, Germanic, Icelandic, uh, Nordic cultures. It's one of those things that kind of is based on some actual people who probably existed at some point way back, but for the most part, we really have no idea who they were. Anyway, the Volsungs were a heroic clan. They were a series of hero men who went out and did all kinds of crazy things. And when I say hero here, I mean, they did things we would call heroic, uh, but at the same time, maybe not at some of them too, like, you know, turning into werewolves and attacking lots of people. Generally not a heroic thing. Anyway. There is a tale out of there. It appears in the, the last true um, generation of, of uh, the Volsungs during the time of Sigurd. 
He's probably a name you don't recognize. You probably recognize, I have heard his name, his father's name, who's Sigmund, or also sometimes called Siegfried. Anyway, Sigurd killed a dragon. Now, this dragon wasn't just any old dragon. His name was Fafnir. There's a fun name, Fafnir. Fafnir had a magic ring. Oh, I got to jump a little farther back. There was a dwarf named Agnir. Oh, I, I love these ancient names. So Agnir made a magic ring. Yes, this is where Lord of the Rings, the ring comes from. It's based in this. This magic ring made gold. Like, didn't, like, actually make gold. In fact, we don't know how it worked. Either it was, like, some kind of uh, metal detector that, like, is like, oh, oh, I've got gold this way, this way, this way, found it. Or it was like, this ring will make you really good at doing business, making business deals, or cheating people, or whatever that makes you get lots of gold. One or the other, we don't know which. It did that. So, Agnir had this ring, and with it he acquired a wealth, a what we would call a hoard of gold. Then he comes into contact with Loki. If you know your, if you know your Nordic gods, Loki is the trickster god. Loki manages to capture him, get the ring from him, and get his gold. Loki gets in trouble with this dwarvish king. He has to hand over the ring and the gold to this dwarvish king. This dwarvish king doesn't get to hold on to it very longer because for the greed of this, his two sons kill him. Their names are Regin, or Regin, and Fafnir. Fafnir is so filled by greed, so much want for this gold and this ring, that it transforms him from a dwarf to a dragon. Not, not like your flying, fire-breathing dragon. No, think like large, angry Komodo dragon that breathes out poison and whose blood is both poisonous and can make you understand uh, what birds are saying. I don't know about you. If you released a Komodo dragon in here right now, I'd probably be pretty upset with you. You, you all might feel the same thing. If you've been to the Akron Zoo, you know Komodo dragons aren't a small animal. And the one they have there is pretty small. This is, you know, much larger and, as I said, breeds out poison. Well, Regin or Regan ends up becoming the foster father of Sigurd son of Sigmund, greatest hero of the age. Sigmund's already dead, by the way. He raises Sigurd. He makes him into a mighty man, a warrior. He actually goes out and he gets Sigurd's father's sword. It's called Graham, which means misery. Great name for a sword, misery. He reforges Graham into the most powerful weapon that has ever existed. And then he tells Sigurd, this is how you defeat Fafnir the dragon. Sigurd goes through a little bit of trickery, manages to get underneath of, of Fafnir and slay him. But as he is rising up, after having killed the dragon, he is immediately confronted with the fact that his foster father is about to kill him now. Because the greed, the want of that magic ring, the want of that hoard of gold is so powerful, it has changed his foster father's heart. Causing him to go from the loving foster father he was into something akin to a dragon. 
Long story short, the ring causes lots of chaos. If you happen to be walking around in Germany or Nordic lands and you find a gold ring half buried in the dirt, don't put it on just in case. Lost magic rings are never a good thing. Unless, of course, you're a hobbit and none of us are hobbits. I'm pretty, I've got pretty hairy feet, but I'm not short enough. Anyway, why this tale? Why, why here? Because greed does something to humans. Now, in the ancient tales, of course, when, when we, we talk about it, it physically transforms people. It transforms them into monsters, into dragons, into ogres, into trolls. That doesn't usually happen. I mean, I, I haven't seen anyone turned into dragons lately. And I think we've got plenty of people out there who are just as greedy, right? Do you know who are Scrooge McDuck? I want to jump into my wealth greedy. but we all recognize that that kind of greed does do something to us. It changes us and makes us less human. It makes us forget who we are. It's not always immediate. Sometimes it takes time. For instance, King David. We know what his greediness does to him. Now, overall, King David does a good job. Oh, I mean, of course, we all know the story of Bathsheba. He sees her, he wants her. And because he wants her, he not only is coveting, he commits adultery, he commits murder. You know, he does lots of things. He breaks, what, three commandments in one go there in the story of Bathsheba. I'll tell another tale, though. You guys have probably heard of the king, of King Ahab. He pops up a lot because he's such a bad king, but also because Ahab was the opposite of, of Elijah. Elijah, the great prophet, his foil is King Ahab and King Ahab's queen Jezebel. Ahab is looking out his, his windows one day, and he sees this lovely vineyard below him, and he wants it. He wants it so bad that he goes down and asks to buy it. Now, just a little bit of a reminder of how land worked in ancient Israel. Uh, Joshua came in, he came in with all of his, you know, all the Israelites following him, and they divided the land into territories. Each, each, um, each, ter each, ay, ay, ay. each tribe got their own territory. And then the tribes separated their lands into clan lands. And then the clan lands were separated into family lands. There's actually rules against moving the stones that were put into the earth at that time to mark down where the edge of each person's property are. You guys, we still have these today. At least I know I do in my land. You probably all do too. That if you, you go around to the edge of your property and you poke around in there somewhere, you're going to find like a little clay or stone uh, marker in the earth, right? Most properties have those even today. One of mine is actually an iron bar that sticks out of the ground that I always worry a little bit about tripping over. It's not exactly the dullest looking thing in the world. Anyway, 
So back then, they put stones down and said, you know, these are the markers, and there's lots of rules, and it's actually an insult to call somebody a stone mover. Uh, it comes up again and again and again in the prophets. They, it's a big rule. Don't do that. Now, you could buy other people's lands. If you fell on hard times, you could sell your land. If you were doing really well, you could buy or lease someone's land. But all of this is based on the Jubilee. That's the seventh, seventh, uh, every seven years was the sabbatical. Every seven sabbaticals was the Jubilee. And on the Jubilee, all lands were returned to the original family. So you never really bought land. You leased it until the next Jubilee. Well, that's what, is, that's what Ahab wants to do. He sees this vineyard, and he wants to lease it. He wants to buy it until the next Jubilee, maybe even a little after that, if he can. He's Ahab. He goes down, and this, this is no, uh, yeah, yeah, owned by a man named Naboth. And Naboth says, look, this is my family's land. We have been here since Joshua conquered this land. You know, it's been hundreds of years, and we have farmed and cared for this piece of property. I know many of us here have, have grown up with family with farmland, or maybe a, a family house, and how we kind of come tied into those to a certain extent. You know, my, my family's not been one of those since my grandfather left his, his family farm. That's the last farm on that side of the family. And the other side of the family hasn't for a long time. But I still have a certain special connection to, to my grandma and grandpa's original houses. You know, I have a special connection to, to things from their house, things that, that mean something more to me, just beyond their, their intrinsic value. For instance, one second. I got this thing in here. I thought of it. Okay, I know what this looks like. It looks like a cannonball or a bowling ball. And it's certainly heavy enough. I mean, it's not light. It's, it's a fossil. It's a fossil that comes out of the lakes regions or what once was lake region around Marion, Ohio, where my, 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 father, my mother's father's father's family used to work and live. And, and whatnot. But it's a kind of fossil. It's basically like a mud pearl. There's a fossil on the inside, and it's covered with layers of mud that have solidified into this, what looks like a cannonball bowling ball. It's just a, a hunk of rock. There's nothing in it. If I cut it open, you might see the tiniest little fossil in the very middle that has of anything of interest. But to me, it's really important because it always sat in the exact same place in my grandparents' house, and I like to play with it. It was really cool as a little kid. It's still pretty cool. It has very little intrinsic value or monetary value, but it has a great deal of value to me. Thus it was for Naboth. Now, mind you, his property was worth a lot more than my bowling ball fossil. <laughs> 
you know, it was worth a lot. It was a prosperous, prosperous vineyard. It was beautiful, so beautiful the king wants it. And so what does the king do? He says, I want to buy it. And David says, no. As I said, it's been in my family forever. There's no way I could put a price tag on this. Its monetary value is not worth what it is to me. You can't pay me enough. You can't pay me enough for that, by the way. Don't ask. Okay, I might be willing to separate it, but there's going to be at least like eight zeros after the number you say. And they're all ahead at the decimal point. And, okay, uh, no, we're not getting that. Anyway, okay, so Naboth says no, and, and King, I'm going to put the big capital K on this King, Ahab goes and lies down in his bed and refuses to get up. He becomes basically my child when I tell her that it's time to put away the Kindle. You all know what that's like with a kid, right? You have a kid who just breaks down crying, upset, because they don't get what they want. And when do you expect? You expect that habit to stop ending at, say, five years old or so. Maybe a little later, I don't know. But not the king of Israel. So Queen Jezebel, another well-known negative character in the Bible, goes to him and says, you know, why are you upset? And she tell, he tells her, and she goes, great. And then she figures out a way to have him have some people break the, uh, what was that? That was last week's commandment, false witness. And they false witness against him, they're claiming that he's blasphemed the Lord, and he's executed, and then the king takes, takes the property for himself. Yeah, that, that's a great ending, isn't it? Now, mind you, I know King Ahab was not a great guy in the beginning. He just wasn't. But in here, it really has transformed him into something just awful. I mean, for all, all purposes said, what we know about King Ahab's rule is that while he dealt with the drought and dealt with other problems, overall, it seems that he was at least a fairly effective king. But here he just becomes a little child weeping in his bed because he doesn't get what he wants. He wants it so bad, it takes away his ability to be a good king. Now, Ahab will eventually die on the battlefield. Jezebel will eventually be thrown out of a tower and devoured by dogs. Great, great endings for both of them. But the reason they do this, the reason it is said that this is done, is not because they persecuted Elijah. It's not because they made idolatry more acceptable. It's not because they killed the king, I mean, they killed the prophets of God. The reason it is done is because they took Naboth's land. That is expressly told to us. In fact, the king will die at that vineyard after being shot with an arrow during battle. Greed transforms us. Greed makes us not human. 
Now, the other thing to take from this is in that story, you know, it's reminding us that the land was given to each of these families, that they may live on the land in this land of milk and honey in perpetuity. They were made sure that every family could care for themselves, that nobody would be going hungry, that no one would be without the ability to care for themselves. The few people that might end up being as such because they were X, Y, or Z, you know, usually it's because they're orphans or they're widows. They're made sure they're still cared for. To be covetous, to be so wanting something that it causes you to do bad things isn't just dangerous because it harms the society around it, because it causes kings to, you know, make false accusations and have people killed. It's dangerous because it means that we are no longer relying on God. Ahab everything, everything he needed. You know, we may, I think he's a very terrible person overall. He's definitely sinful. He's definitely dangerous. He is not a good man. But he had everything he needed despite he was ruling over Israel, one of God's kingdoms, and God was protecting them even in their sinful actions. They were being cared for and watched for and provided for. He had nothing he needed. But he had things that he wanted so badly. They made him into a monster. You shall not covet doesn't mean you can't want things. You can want things. You can want a new car, certain kind of clothes. You know, you, you, if you want to, you can pay $8,000 for a new purse or $10,000 for that certain watch. If that's really what you want, okay. That's up to you. But to covet something, to want it that badly, to make you want to do something, to not rely on the Lord, working through whatever the Lord is going to work through to get you there, that's not good. Don't be willing to bend your ethics. Don't be willing to bend your faith to get what you want. Instead, just trust that God will get you there in the end. Now, part of that journey may be you finding out that you do not need that $8,000 purse or that $10,000 watch. God might get you on that path first. That's what I kind of hope, because frankly, I, I, I don't need a pair of clothing unless it's got a very special duty that needs, it needs, it needs like extra work on it. I don't need anything that costs me more than 40 bucks. And 40 bucks is already too much to spend, in my opinion. But that's me. I am cheap when it comes to clothes. The Ten Commandments, they are, as I've said, and I will say, and I will say again, the Ten Commandments come down to this basic idea. You should love the Lord with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. If you can do that, all other things flow naturally. We've talked how this looks about between the relationship between us and God. 
We talked about how this is reflected in our relationships with those closest with us, and we are talking now about how that looks in terms of how we live in a world larger than us. The beginning of this is you shall worship the Lord God only. No other gods beside you. And it's ending with you shall trust completely in God that you know that you will be cared for. So, first off, don't take my stone. Second of all, trust in God. Know that things will be taken care of. It may not be the path that you expect, but know that when you covet something, when you want it so bad that you're willing to bend or break your faith for it, you are not trusting in God. Those of us who have been doing these Bible studies together, that always ends up being the main thing that the prophets are saying over and over and over again. You who trust in the strength of your arm, you who trust in the strength of money, you who trust in the strength of your authority, remember this. That is arrogance. And arrogance like that is always punished by God. Instead, trust in the Lord. Trust in the Lord because in the end, all things will work out. So, trust in the Lord. All things will be provided. And if not the exact way you think it's going to be, trust me, it'll get there the way it's supposed to be shall not covet. Thank you. And thus we have ended the Ten Commandments, the ten pillars upon which the faith is built on. I remember the first time I shared that song with my, my fellow uh, members. I am on, yes. My fellow members at, uh, at seminary. We were in Mexico. It was on my birthday. It was also the day that we were all infected with uh, two types of E. coli and Shigiola. We didn't know it yet. We'd find out that next morning. Fun times. You know, that trip didn't go as planned. And there was a lot of anger. But in the end, despite the path that we ended up taking, it really ended up being a good trip. It changed a lot of us, helped us better understand something about ourselves and about how God moves. I know a lot better now what it's like to be in the worst situation of your life. I've had a few of those, but that was, you know, physically worse. It was pretty terrible. In the end, everything came out right. It's trust in the Lord. Trust that things will work out. Maybe not the way you planned them, but they'll work out. And it all comes back to this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and all your mind. 
If you can do this simple thing, all the law will flow from that. And so too, the perfect understanding of who Jesus called you to be. Amen.